0: hear God's word. We are in the, in the book of Acts in chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 22 through 33. So hear God's word this morning. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Because he, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the primary
1: uh, addiction in my life that I've, I've just sort of come to terms with is that I, I just really love coffee. And my favorite thing to do is sit down with a cup, maybe even a pot of coffee, and, uh, and just read a book, um, listen to music. Like, to me, there's not many better experiences than that. And so for me, oftentimes when I write a sermon, um, I'll write a sermon at a coffee shop, uh, mostly, like, to drink good coffee, but also to be around other people so that I'm not, like, kind of off in my own pastor world, but, like, in the real world with people, people real, you know, real things. Um, and so uh, this past week, I wrote this sermon at a coffee shop, and most of the seats were taken when I went in, and so I ended up kind of at the bar section of the coffee shop. And I ended up, like, really close with these two guys. There's was, like, two guys, and then I'm right here. And if I, like, you know, if I moved my elbow a little bit, like, I would bump the guy right next to me. And so as I'm, as I'm writing my sermon and beginning to write my sermon, they sit down, and they begin to have a, a really personal and intimate conversation um, about Christianity and about how in particular Christianity is is bad, is harmful, is, is misguided. And it was sort of strange sitting there, because typically I get my Bible out and I have my Bible out and, and I'm writing my sermon, but then it's like, should I, you know, this is a pretty big Bible. It's like if I if I just kind of, you know, did that like right next to him, it's like that would feel awkward for all of us involved. And, and so do I get my Bible out? Do I not? And do I interrupt? Do I not? And um, it's just sort of strange sitting there and, and listening. And what I want to say is, like, to be an Orthodox Christian today, I mean small-o Orthodox, but to, like, kind of believe most of the Bible's true or all the Bible's true, um, is something that our culture finds not just wrong but actually uh, actually harmful and not just mistaken but actually uh, dangerous, potentially. And listening to those guys, a real... A real um, compassion for them, and I just, I longed for a Christianity that could speak to the conversation that they're having. And my guess is, many of you, like, you feel that tension. You feel that tension in the workplace when you're working with people, that there are certain things the church thinks to be true that's just completely off-kilter with where the predominant uh, reality of our world is. And especially if you're a kid at school, you might feel that. I felt that a lot in middle school and high school, that um, my faith really put me at odds with, um, with things my, my friends just took for granted. And if, that, if that's hard for you, if you've been thinking through that as a Christian, I, just, I have good news for you. Maybe this isn't good news. Maybe this is bad news. Um, but if, that's, if you feel that, just so you know, like this, is, this has been the case for the majority of Christians for the majority of history. And in particular, Christianity actually launched and exploded in growth in a culture like ours. And that's actually what we're looking at. Like we're spending the next several weeks through Labor Day looking at the book of Acts. And looking at Paul as he goes from city to city to city, and he preaches the gospel there. And in in most cases, he has dramatic confrontations with the culture, with the city itself, because things Paul holds to be true, they find ridiculous or harmful or wrong. And so in Acts 17, Paul has entered into the city of Athens, which is like the cultural center of the day or the intellectual center of the day. It's where all the best thinkers were. So sort of think like all of our Ivy League schools, you know, imagine putting them all in one city. And that's what Athens was like. It was incredibly, uh, incredibly an intellectual place. And, and so Paul arrives into this city and he's, in, he's actually invited to speak to all of these leading cultural thinkers of the day. And so what does he say? What does he do? Well, Andrew didn't read this for us, but here's where it starts. It says, Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul sees, he sees idols everywhere in the city, and he, he does two things after he sees these, these idols. He goes um, into the, the marketplace, we're told. And he, he verse uh, 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews first, the devout persons, and then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we're told Paul reasoned with people in the marketplace. And I realize that sounds like Paul grabbed, he grabbed a box, he took it down to high v, and he stood up on it, and he started talking at people as they're coming in to get their, you know, their bananas, right? Like, that's what it sounds like. That's not quite what this was like in this day, that the marketplace, it wasn't just a grocery store in that day, but it was, it was really where, it was where everything happened. Because you didn't have newspapers or TV with news channels in that day. So the marketplace, that's where you went to get your news. It's where arts and politics and philosophy were all discussed. Like there's, this is where everyone talked amongst one another. It was sort of to some extent like, like Facebook, only in person, It was a common space where everyone went to to learn, to make life happen, to speak their own peace. And so Paul goes to the marketplace with the, the goal of kind of reasoning out the gospel with the people of Athens. So that's the first picture we need in mind. The second is Paul, we're told he reasoned with them. And that's important because the word there, it's literally, it's the word we get for dialogue. He dialogued with them in the marketplace. And this is probably actually a reference to the Socratic method. Right, so some of you maybe in high school or middle school, you're learning about the Socratic method where you ask questions, lots of question asking, right? Rather than telling people, this is what you believe, this is what you should, you ask questions that try to, to spur up thought or discussion. So Paul, he's gone to the place of ideas where everyone's meeting and he's asking questions and he's listening and he's understanding and he's, he's pushing a little bit. But I, I sort of, I glossed over something that's important, um, which is the reason Paul does this is because we're told he, w- he was provoked because of all of the idols that he saw in Athens. These little silver and gold statues that were, were all over the place in Athens. And, and there was a saying going around in that day that in Athens, there were so many idols, there were so many gods and goddesses, that if you walk the streets of Athens, you're more likely to meet a god or a goddess than a, than a human being. There's this many idols around. And Paul... He, like, he has a real problem with this. Like, provoked doesn't mean he was, you know, like, uh, slightly, agitated. you know, he was mad. He was, he was angry, and he was like, this is not right. And, and some of us, especially, like, we live in a culture with lots of different worldviews, religions, we might think, well, what's Paul's problem? He should lighten up, loosen up a bit. Um, and and that, it's understandable to feel that way, but there's a couple, couple of important things we need to know about Paul to understand why this was such a big deal for him. The first is that Paul grew up with the Hebrew Bible and the number one command in the Hebrew Bible and all the Hebrew Scriptures is no idolatry. Whatever you think the Bible tells you not to do, the number one thing the Hebrew Bible tells you not to do is not to worship other gods. In fact, the Ten Commandments, that's the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. You you should worship the Lord your God. You should have no other gods before before me, uh, says the Lord. And And then secondly, you should not make an image of me. So this is like, this is for Paul, this is the most... Probably the most important held belief he has is no idolatry. And now he walks into the city, but there's 30,000 of them. And the second, and this is, this is what's more important, and this is really where we're going to spend our time in the sermon this morning, is that second, idolatry or idols is not really about idols. That religion, it's not ultimately about a bunch of ideas that you have um, that, or, or a little statue that, that, that religion is about Religion is ultimately about something that's behind that. There's something behind the idols that Paul has trouble with. And behind the idols were were hopes, were dreams, were desires, were longings people had. And everyone everyone hopes for for something. And these idols were the representation of the hopes of the culture. What their religion was a representation of is what their longings were, what their hopes were. War. And if, if, if that's confusing to you, that's okay. Let me try to explain it um, uh, like this. There, there were two main ideas going around in the world. There were lots of ideas in Greek. I know if, if you know this history, you're going to think, gosh, Tim, this is simplistic. Well, like, I have 30 minutes, so come me a break. Um, but, but Stoicism and Epicureanism were kind of the two main ways of living in, in the world. And, and I know this may sound boring, like a history lesson. It's actually not. It's, I think it's deeply relevant to us today. Um, and so, so behind the idols were these two religions, I mean, lots of different religions, but primarily kind of two ideas. And the first, Stoicism, uh, could be defined like, like this. The, the Stoicism was the endurance of pain or hardship without a display of feelings and without complaint. The Stoics rightly understood that, that, that there was going to be suffering in life, and life was going to be hard. And, and in order to get through life, um, you, had to, you had to kind of push it down and not react and be strong, that uh, to, to use a movie quote to summarize Stoicism, if you've ever seen A League of Their Own, uh, there's a moment when Tom Hanks uh, yells at one of the, the women baseball players and tells her there's no crying in baseball. The Stoics would just cut off the in baseball and put in everything, right? There's no crying in everything. And, and so that was their way of... of it, you navigated suffering in the world by having a, you know, a Stoic-like or a, a, a strong-like approach to it. And of course today our culture still thinks that. Like you're, if you... I've heard people that, like, you know, lost their husband or wife at 50 years, and, and someone say, gosh, that was six months ago. Why are they still having such a hard It's like they're, they're having a hard time because they lost their spouse at 50 years. Like, almost grief. Grief shouldn't last that long. We shouldn't really cry in public. Like, all of those ideas are still very real in our culture um, today. But I don't, I don't want to talk about those as much because Epicureanism is probably the culture that we're, is more like our culture today. The Epicureans, their response to suffering in this world was, well, like, get all the pleasure you can while you can and pursue pleasure as your, your means of life. Eat, drink, and ha- be happy for tomorrow we die. And so the, a life of pleasure overcame suffering for them. So to do, you do what you want, do what you feel, be who you feel, uh, pursue pleasure. And so that's, that's what's behind those, those idols. That's, what's, that's what the idols are ultimately about. And that is what Paul is going to sort of get at as he gets to, to preach. And yet, I want to be careful, because we, we could say, well, we don't have 30,000 idols in Kansas City. That's not, that's not true. This is a totally different reality. This is totally different. But it's, it's not. We just, we just don't have the statues. If Paul walked into Kansas City, he would, he'd have this, look at all this false religion. Look at all this false worship. He'd have the same reaction. So two quick examples uh, to think this out together. The, the first, why, why is it that every mannequin at the mall has completely unrealistic human proportions? Like if a, if a mannequin at the mall came to life, like it couldn't walk. Like it would just fall over because the way it's shaped is not, is not realistic. And why do you think that is? Is there like a malfunction at the mannequin store and they keep putting out weirdly shaped things that are like, oh, just, we'll, just, we'll fix it next time. Just go ahead and push that, out. Or, or maybe, maybe those mannequins are in the, the window to say, if you buy, if you come into the store and you make your offering to the god Nordstrom, Uh, The God Nordstrom will give you this look, which is exactly what happened in Athens. It's, I need really good crops. Crop God, here's your offering. Okay, the crop God will now give you really good crops. The mall is just as much a temple as these idols in Athens were. Or uh, if you drive south on 35, uh, coming from Kansas City towards uh, Shawnee, you'll find there's a, a hospital billboard that says uh, that encourages you to go to that hospital, and the reason you should go to that hospital, right there on the ad, is go where the miracles are. All right, so th- this isn't just a hospital. This is go be—you can be healed miraculously here. These aren't just doctors who will do their best to treat and care for you. The, if you come and you offer your sacrifice, you give a gift to the hospital gods, they'll give you a miracle. I mean, that like is exactly what was happening in Athens. It's just they had a statue and an altar. We have a billboard. It's different, but it's the same. That everyone hopes for something. We all long, we desire something. And so Paul gets to Athens. He sees all this and he asks questions. He tries to understand. And I would just say, are we, are we patient enough with our own hearts to try to understand our own longings? Are we patient enough with our neighbors to try to understand what are their longings? What's behind these idols? Why are we so obsessed with looks or with money or with appearance? And I want to be clear, and I'll talk more about this later, the answer is not to say, you know, pleasure's bad, all of this is terrible, look at all these terrible people. And that's not the answer. Because we're all a part of it too. We, we are long for these things too. And, and so before we start going into critiquing others, what do, what do we want? What do I want? What do you want? What is your longing? What does your heart desire? Is it healing? Is it an appearance? Is it more money? What, what is it? What does your heart most want? Everyone hopes for something, and, and there's a huge problem with our hopes. And that's, where, that's really where Paul will go in his, his sermon, um, the sermon that Andrew read for us. And so he starts... He starts by pointing out 30,000 idols all over, or all these idols around Athens he's provoked. Um, but then as he starts, he gets up to speak to these college pro- professors, the intellectual thinkers. He says to them, um, um, hey, I found an altar that you have that says to an unknown God. And I know that God that you don't know. And I'm going to proclaim him to you. But he starts with this unknown God altar. And that's really, that's a, that's a significant thing because in, in this culture, in Greek religion, the gods were really capricious. They were basically like human beings, only like if they got mad at you, like they didn't throw a pillow at you, they threw a lightning bolt at you. Right? They had lots of power. So they're basically like human beings, only with infinitely more power. And so they got angry, they were vindictive, they lashed out. And so one reason this altar is here is probably in case, like, even though they already have 30,000 gods, let's say you forgot one, and he's up there in heaven, and it's like, they remember all 30,000 but me, and like, what's up with that? And so he starts getting angry at people, and you know, comes And they can say, no, we, we just hadn't found you yet, and here's your altar, and now we'll put your statue on there. So this is like covering your bases, um, so to speak. And so Paul starts there. This deep uncertainty they had, this deep concern they had, that there's always a God somewhere out to get them. There's always a God somewhere just kind of brooding over their failures and over the fact they're not giving them enough credit or enough attention. Paul starts there, and then he goes and he talks about what God is actually like. And here's what he says in verse 26 about what the God of the Bible is like, this God they don't know. And he, God, the God of the Bible, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted period, periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So Paul, what he does is, he first he says two things about the biblical God. It's in the rest of the sermon, but I'm just going to take a snapshot. He really says two things about the biblical God. First is that this God is all powerful. There's not 30,000 gods duking out for history. And what's going to happen? There's one God who rules history. And he made you. There's one creator God. And the second thing Paul says is that this God wants to know you personally. Right? He's not far from each one of us. And then Paul, he quotes two poets, or at least we think they might be two poets. One we know as a poet. The other we're not quite sure. But it's probably two Greek poets that, that show Paul is right. Right? Indeed, in him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed his offspring. Like this image of God, that in God we live, move, have our being, we are children of God. Paul's saying your poets know that. But here's, here's what Paul's really doing. Is the Greek gods, they're not like that at all. You, you could not have a personal relationship with the Greek god. They were, they were a little crazy, right? They were not predictable. They were angry. They were capricious. They were vindictive. You were scared of the gods. You didn't, you didn't have a personal relationship with God. And so here Paul comes and says, you know what, your poets your poets are undoing all of your idols and your 30,000 gods it doesn't work and your poets know it in fact your poets have known all along that this god of the bible is the true god and they've been talking about this god and they've been laying, and all get rid of the idols listen to your poets come come to the true god of the bible the paul essentially says to this crowd your gods make you promises that they cannot keep And to draw this into our own culture, everyone believes promises that cannot be kept through our idolatry, through our false worship. And Paul makes that point by quoting Greek poets that spoke more truly of the Hebrew God than the Greek and Roman gods. And what he wants them to see is that what their hearts want, a a God who, who would know them personally... The God who would care for them personally, what their hearts long for can only be met in Jesus, not in their Greek gods. And for us, as we go through our own our own culture, and we have the gods that, that speak to us, the, the billboards, the malls, the, the commercials, the advertisements, all of those, all of those are making promises that cannot be kept. And through all of those promises, we have these longings that we sense won't work, but we rarely stop to, to, to think or to dwell on the empty promises our culture makes us. So, so think of it like this. I, my, when we got our house three years ago, uh, it was clear that the sidewalk, uh, because we live on kind of a hill, had sunken in. And at some point, they'd done a really cheap fix on it. And they like, lift the ground back up, sealed it shut. And our realtor like, listen, at some point, sidewalk's going to start you know falling back in because the foundation isn't is infirm. And of course, me uh, being a guy who, you know, typically, uh, this is what happens when I do yard work. So like, I just, like, I just stay away from any work uh, around the house as general, because just we're just, you know, eyes are going to blow up. That's what's going to happen. Um, but I just kind of walk over that, and I know it's happening. I know it's getting worse, but I just kind of don't look at it. I just walk into the house. I'll take care of that later. You know. I'll just... And I think what Paul is saying is we do that with the empty promises our culture makes. We see, we see the foundation is weak and it's sinking. But we, you know, I'll just I'll keep I'll keep buying or I'll keep thinking this will give me a, give me what I want. And we we just we miss. We don't look at a foundation that is not holding. And so I'm going to give three examples of, of what I mean. Three things I think our culture promises us that ultimately. The cracks are all around us, it's obvious the foundation is sinking, and yet we we don't want to look at that. The first uh, is that our our culture makes a promise that you can explain everything through the material world. So, in other words, we we sort of live with this idea that science could explain everything, that we can have a test for everything, that everything can be explained just by the material world. Now, science is very good, don't get me wrong. Um, but I would say most human beings who have lived through history cannot explain their world only through the scientific method, including atheists. So there's a, a famous atheist, her name is Barbara Reinrich, and I'm sorry if you know her, I know I butchered her last name. I tried to find the right way to pr- pronounce it, but I couldn't. Um, but she wrote, and there's been a number of these books recently, basically what's been called a spiritual atheist memoir, where atheists talks about supernatural things while completely denying that any supernatural exists. And so she did this, and she talks about an experience. She had as a teenager, and it's been repeated a couple times in her life, and here's what she says. Here's what she wrote. She said, uh, this encounter of this thing, uh, it was a furious encounter with a living substance that was coming at me through all things at once. And one reason for the terrible wordlessness of the experience is that you cannot observe fire really closely without becoming a part of it. Whether you start as a twig or a gorgeous tapestry, you will be recruited into the flame and made indistinguishable from the rest of the blaze. So here, here, what she's saying is, I had this encounter with this other thing. It was like fire. It was like someone coming at me. But she's an atheist, and she's wrestling. What, what do I do with that? And here's what she does. She says, the impasse was this. If I let myself speculate even temp- tentatively about that something, in other words, if I even think that's a God, if I even think that's Jesus, if I acknowledge the possibility of a non-human agent or agents, some mysterious other, intervening in my life, could I still call myself an atheist? So essentially, she has a, what she says herself is a, like a supernatural experience she can't explain. Her atheism can't explain it. So she stays an atheist and just is like, I don't know what happened, and moves on. And here, here's a moment where, like, she's walking right over the, the sidewalk, is cr- like, it's crumbling. Her atheism is, it doesn't have foundation to explain this incredibly meaningful, like, life-changing event for her. And if you read her memoir, this is not just like a weird moment in for this, this is like a meaningful moment to her, and her atheism can, cannot explain it. And rather than look at this crack in, in her universe and, and ask, why, why, what is there? What's, what was that other? She just brushes it off and continues on in her atheism. Our culture makes promises that cannot keep. You, can, you will not be able to explain your entire life through what you see. Point one. Uh, example two. Our, our culture uh, is, is much like the Epicurean culture, um, which, which says that, that essentially you should order your life around, around pursuing pleasure. And this is, this is always a tough thing to, 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 uh, um, to teach on because on the one hand, I would say Christianity is very high on pleasure. And... <clears throat> You know, the Westminster Catechism? There it is. This is my eyes. We'll just blame those. Uh, It says, like, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, is to have pleasure in God. That's the chief end of you and I's existence. So on the one hand, like, Christianity is the most pro-pleasure religion there is. I believe that. But on the other hand, sort of the Epicurean way of seeing things, and I would say our own culture's predominant way of seeing the world, is that the pleasure is removed from being a good thing to becoming an ultimate thing. And now, if something gives me pleasure, I must do it. If something will bring me pleasure, then I, I should do it no matter what, what it is. And so, like Paul, Paul would have been mocked for this in his day. In our own day, uh, Christians are sort, of, are sort of told we need to get with the times, we, we're backwards if Christianity doesn't change, especially around the way we think about pleasure and especially the way we think about pleasure with, with our sexual ethic as a church, that if Christianity doesn't change, then we're going to die. We're going to become irrelevant. And there, there's there's two reasons why I find I, just, I, can't, I can't buy that argument. There may be better arguments. There's two reasons why I struggle with that one. First is that Christianity was born in a culture like our own and exploded in growth in a culture like our own with a completely countercultural way of looking at, at sexuality. And so So the thought that because we have a different view of sex in our broader culture will limit our growth, that's actually demonstrably false because you just go back to the first century. But second, and this is more important because you and I, we live 40, 50 years into this idea of of just pursue your sexuality and it'll, it'll bring you joy. We're like 50, 40 years down. We actually see some of the fruits, some of the costs of that. So last week I quoted from Russell Brand, he's a a celebrity, he's sort of withdrawn from celebrity culture because of, he sort of found our materialistic culture sort of empty and he tasted it and found it empty. And so here's what he said about his own life, his own promiscuity, Uh, here's what he said recently in a a radio interview. He, He said this, he said, the great gift of promiscuity is that you get to experience all of the intimacy with all of these strangers and it seems exciting, but within it this ongoing seam of loneliness unignorable. It took a while to recognize the emotional cost on me and the spiritual cost on other people. That our culture has made promises that that it cannot keep. And I think one of the reasons why Christianity just so deeply flourished in in a culture that was, basically had the same sexual ethic we have today, um, is because People saw the emptiness of their own culture, like Russell Brand is saying. They saw the loneliness, which today, sociologically, our culture is lonelier today than it's ever been. We're an incredibly lonely culture. They saw the loneliness. They saw the destruction in families and in people's lives. And they saw a Christian community where... People were committed in in covenant marriages, humbly serving one another, denying themselves for the other, not seeking the other person as a means to their own pleasure, but as a means to deny and lift someone else up. And they saw an alternative society that just was better and more compelling. And it's why today our answer to our current culture should not be one to look with disdain on people who have a different ethic than us, because we've done a lot of damage as Christians just being mean. And that's one reason why people have trouble with our ethic is we're, there's just a lot of Christians who are just mean people. Um, but but a second reason or a second posture we need to have is that our our way of life needs to be a counterculture, an alternative. And I'll just one more example on this. If you, watch, uh, if you watch the show Friends, it sort of lifts up this promiscuous culture as fun and exciting and you know, really great, but now, now you watch shows that are similar, so, and I had, just to be clear, I've not watched a ton of this, so only a little bit, but now the show Girls on HBO, which also showed promiscuous culture within New York City, Friends, it's fun, exciting, Girls, it's sad. It's just, it, you just watch that show, and you just are depressed, because it's lonely, people are deeply insecure. that is that is the fruit of our culture, because our culture has made promises with regard to pleasure that cannot be kept, so that's example two. Um, example three, and I, I think this may be the one that's the least, least controversial or least difficult to overcome, is our, our culture is today where we really long for justice. We long for, uh, for men and women to be, be treated fairly. We long for um, people who are oppressing others to be brought to justice. But one of the troubles I think we're experiencing now in our current culture moment is 30, 40 years ago, most of the people fighting for ju- justice fought out of a Christian worldview with deep hopefulness. Expectancy, but today because we're 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 sort of moving away from Christianity, a lot of people advocating for justice do so out of atheism, and so there's there's a hopelessness to it. And yeah, one of my my favorite uh, favorite singer songwriters, he's an atheist. His name's Josh Ritter. Uh, he has a song called "Thin Blue Flame," and I, I know I've used this illustration before. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you don't. I'm baking that you don't remember it. But if you do, it's too good. I have to use it again. Um, He has a song where he he sings, as an atheist, about a city he longs for to come out of the sky and come and and replace this broken world. And here's his lyrics. He says, At night I make plans for a city laid down. Spirals and capitals like the twist of a script. Streets named for heroes that could almost exist. The future glass buildings and the past and address. The weddings and pollen and the wine bottomless. All wrongs forgotten and all vengeance made right, the suffering verbs put to sleep in the night. But what's the city like? It has forgiveness. All wrongs forgotten. It has justice. All vengeance made right. Everything done to people in vengeance was, was set right. There's no more suffering, right? The suffering verbs put to sleep in the night. And all things are made new. There's the world's just beginning. The guests are in good cheer. The wine is bottomless. One reason why I love Josh Ritter is even though he's an atheist, like he wrote, that's like the best Christian song that like you could probably sing. That's like if you read Revelation 21 and 22, that is that is everything we hope for as Christians. Is that world? And what, the only thing that breaks my heart is that Josh he sings as an atheist. And he never stops to ask, gosh, like, the, my sidewalk, what I want is justice and forgiveness and mercy in a, in a healed world that my atheist will, atheism will never give me. I mean, I feel like humanity, we have enough of a track record now, At however long we've existed, that, like, justice is not coming with, on our own efforts. We're going to continue to sin against each other, to hate one another. Like, this is just not getting better. And, and his own atheism can't give this to him. Is this culture, our culture, has made promises that it cannot keep. And so this morning, if, if you're in a place, who, either if you struggle to believe Christianity, if you're not a Christian, you know, again, what do you long for? What do you hope for? What do you want to see happen? What, what promises are you, are you running your life on? And then to ask, can your atheism, your agnosticism, can it give you those things? Don't ignore the longings. And don't ignore that, that you want justice or that you want community, or that you want intimacy. Don't ignore those things. Rather, more fully lean into those longings. Your problem isn't your longings, it's your theology. So adapt to a theology that can give you your longings. And if you're a Christian um, this morning, I think the first thing I want to repeat this is that I would hope our posture towards our culture would not be antagonistic, would not be self-righteous, would not be um, mean-spirited, and often it is. Often it is. Instead, the way we should think about this is we, we are surrounded by neighbors who first want most of what Jesus wanted. They want justice. They want mercy. They want forgiveness. That's, that's what their longings are. They want those things. Right? Don't treat them like they're, they're bad people. They want what Jesus offers. That's one. So, so understand where they're coming from. And two, understand they're eating. They're picking off bones when steak is available. Right? There's a, there's a rich meal in the gospel and in who Jesus is with, for justice, for intimacy, for kindness, for mercy. And they're, they're, they're picking from bones instead, and so they're starving. So have a posture of humility and openness and listening, dialogue, ask questions. But more than that, Christians, we need to understand that we believe these promises that can't be kept, right? We believe these things. We, we, we oftentimes have foundations that are not really built on Jesus or the gospel, but built on money, appearances, you know, getting pleasure. It's built, They're built on the wrong things. That we all hope for something. We all believe promises that cannot be kept. And so our, our work this morning is to believe the only promise that will never fail us. And so Paul, he ends a sermon uh, like this. He says this in verse 31. He says, Because God has fixed fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, by Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul does two things in the last part of the sermon. First, he says there's going to be a judgment, but if you come to Jesus, you escape that judgment. Now again, this is another place our culture has a hard time of judgment. Um, We don't like thinking of that, but, but this... This culture actually thought the gods judge people all the time. Like they they thought the gods never stopped judging you. So you always had to be making sacrifices, always had to be coming, always had to be reaching out or else like the gods were going to react to you. And now Paul comes along and says, this God isn't like that. He, He actually sent his son to take your judgment on himself so that if you come to him in faith, you don't have to live like this anymore. You have to put an altar to an unknown god. You have to cover your bases. You don't have to keep worrying: is the god going to come after me? You come through Jesus, and you, you have grace. You have mercy. So that's why escape from judgment is one which would have been an incredible, incredible healing for the lives they would have led. And the second thing Paul says is, is our hope as Christians is the resurrection. You get more than escape from judgment. You get resurrection. And this, throughout Acts seventeen. The resurrection is what people had the hardest time with, with Paul. They're just like, they were out on resurrection. A couple people converted, but for the most part, when Paul brought up the resurrection, the cultural elites of that day mocked him, made fun of him. And much like today, our own culture looks at at Orthodox Christianity and finds it ridiculous, finds it uh, worth being mocked. But I want to end on this, this note of hope, which is that 200 years or so after Paul reached this, this sermon, the cultural elites of that day and the broader culture went from mocking Christianity to being Christians. It's another reason why I, just, I never buy the argument, hey, change everything you believe to adapt to the culture so they'll like you. No, like, we should be brought, uh, going deeper into the gospel because the gospel is a great changing force. And the reason I think that the culture changed so dramatically in 200 years is not because Christianity had a bunch of people with great arguments. You know, they posted a bunch of great stuff on Facebook, and everyone's like, you know what? I didn't believe, but now on Facebook, it's like, this makes sense? I don't think that's what happened. In fact, most historians would tell you that's probably not what happened. And Rodney Stark, who wrote The Rise of Christianity, who tried to give, and I think he gives the best answer for why Christianity went from being this mocked minority religion only for, poor and, you know, for the poor and for people who largely overlooked in society, to being the predominantly believed uh, uh, thing in this culture within a couple of hundred years, which is just astounding to think about. The reason that happened is because these Christians believed in the resurrection. Like it wasn't some, you know, fanciful, it was like we believe the resurrection and we're going to work out all of these implications into our lives. And so when plagues hit ro- the Roman Empire and people got sick and everyone who lived for pleasure ran to the hills to hide Christians stayed behind and cared for the sick at risk of their own life, many dying because they believed that they would rise again. They believed the resurrection, so they stayed behind to serve those who were suffering. But the reality is if you live for pleasure and Christians... Like every day on your drive home, you're going to have advertisements, whether on the radio or billboards or, you know, driving along 35 advertisements saying make your life all about the pursuit of of pleasure. But if you live for pleasure, your worldview worldview will not give you a reason to run towards those who are suffering, who have disease, who are plagued, because you will not get pleasure from that in 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 the short run. But if you believe in the resurrection, you have every reason to put yourself in harm's way for other people because you know in the end there is new life springing up through the ground because of Jesus Christ. That if you live for pleasure, you're not going to spend enormous time investing in the widow, and the orphan, and the broken parts of our city because you have every reason not to spend your, the resources on the poor for flourishing of all, but on yourself. But if you have, if you believe in the resurrection, you have every reason to go around expecting that anyone's life could change at any moment, anything could happen that's good, that, that, that flourishing can come from where there is suffering at any moment because of the resurrection power of Jesus. And so Christians from the time of Acts 17 for the next two three hundred years believed in the resurrection and they lived it out in their towns, in their cities, and people saw a different life. And they saw their sidewalks are falling in. Their foundations do not hold for suffering and for pain. They do not bring justice. They do not bring community or intimacy. And they saw the church as an alternative to society that did all of those things. And so this morning, I had just one question. It's, do you believe the resurrection? Like, Are you working out the implication of the resurrection in your life? Because this is how the gospel works. This is like central to what the gospel is. The gospel is that to save your life, you have to die and lose it and be raised back with Jesus. To see the beautiful treasure of who Jesus is, you have to see your own poor and needy status to let him lift you up. But Jesus promises you to meet you in that weakness. That is the promise that will never fail. You cannot be too low for this Messiah. You cannot be too broken for this Messiah. You cannot be too set aside for this Messiah. He meets you where you are. And he seals that promise with us, not not with words, but with his blood and with his life. And then God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would, for for every person in this room, me first, God, would you fill us with the hope and the implications of the resurrection for our life? That we live on a promise that was was sealed with the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we come now to sing and to worship in light of that promise. Help us, O God. Amen.